0: Let's read, then we'll pray, and we'll jump into this and do some work. Galatians six eleven through 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this beautiful letter of Galatians that you have given to us. You gave to Paul to give to the Galatian church, and you... By your providence, made sure that it was given to us, and we thank you for that today. We receive it today, Father, as a gift, straight from you. Um, words from your own heart to us, to remind us about what is truly important. And so, God, I pray that our, our hearts and our minds would be awakened and reminded by what truly is important this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. As uh, Brian said, we, you know, land this plane, however you want to describe ending a series. Um, And I even kind of wrestled with that a little this week because in a lot of ways, uh, we're finishing a series, but the word of God is never done. And uh, just because we did a series on Galatians does not in any uh, by any means mean that we tapped this out. Um, <laughs> the tap is still on the keg, and there is plenty of, uh, of delicious goodness uh, to be mined from this book. And, um, and so I would encourage you uh, to never... Uh, treat the Word of God in such a way that you would say, yeah, I've I've dealt with that. Been there, done that, read that book, read that letter, dealt with that, I've done My understanding is full. That is not the way the Word of God works, and that's not how we're going to treat Galatians. And so while we may be finishing this series, everything that Galatians has taught us And everything that Galatians is, is going to be something that we continually come back to again and again and again and again. And so when I was thinking of that, I I thought of it more as uh, we are not coming um, to receive something and consume it and walk away filled. We are coming as soil that has been prepared to receive a seed that can be planted in our hearts and continue to grow as we leave this place into eternity and mature and, and, and create fruit that bears more seed that can be planted and grow and mature, that bears fruit that bears more seed that can be planted and grow and mature, not only in our lives individually, not only in our lives as family units, but also as our lives, in our lives, as a, as a family unit, as a church, as the people and the family of God called Redemption Hill. And so um, one of the questions I just had to ask myself again as we got ready to end our series here is, why Galatians? 66 books in the Bible. Over 40 authors written over 1,400 to 2,000 years, of all the places that we could have gone in the Bible to have our first series as a church together. Why Galatians? There there was um, reason there. There was um, a method to the madness. There was purpose behind why we came here. And so I had to ask myself again this week, why Galatians? You know, we're almost 20 weeks down the road now. Why did we come to Galatians? And primarily the reason we came to Galatians is because of the overarching message of Galatians, which is justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. That is the anthem of Galatians that Paul is continually Uh, singing and shouting over the Galatian believers and over us, that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And every single one of those words we could emphasize in a different way and, and really drive it home, that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That we are justified by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. And of course, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These, this really is the foundation for us in Christian doctrine. If it's not based in grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it's not Christian doctrine. And essentially what Paul is doing for us, and even in the language that he used throughout the, this letter to the Galatians when he said that we must walk in step with the gospel, it's actually those words where we get the word orthodoxy from. And so Galatians really is about pure orthodoxy, a true religion, in a uh, true uh, doctrine in the Christian Religion. This is absolutely foundational for our faith, and it's what makes us the church and makes us the people of God. John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons and the daughters of God. It's through faith in Christ by which we receive this grace and are adopted into the family of God. So this has everything to do not only with what we believe, but who we are, our new identity. And this is one of the things that Paul ends his letter reminding us of our identity because of the gospel. So why Galatians? Because everything that we will do as a body will emanate from this point from this central point, and we will return to it again and again and again. And so it was literally like taking a huge rock and throwing it in the middle of the pond and letting those ripples go back and then come back and go back and come back. That is the heart behind what we want to see. When we say that we want to be gospel-centered or gospel-centric, it means that everything must emanate from the gospel and return to the gospel so that we're continually being reminded of who we are because of who God is and what he has done for us and on our behalf. This is literally the hinge on which the door of orthodoxy swings. Redemption, salvation, and justification only comes by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so what is justification? We use that word almost every week. What What is justification? It is literally to legally be declared righteous. Or it's as if you were never guilty to begin with, so if you have been, been declared justified, if you have been justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, it is as if you have never sinned, right? Justified, just as if I had never sinned. And the product of that, the byproduct of our justification, is the thing that gives us a reason to celebrate. It's a thing that gives us a reason to come here and sing the songs that we sing and rejoice and be happy in the Lord. Because justification gives us the only thing that we need in this life, which is peace with God. So Romans 5, 1 through 3, if you want to turn there, says that therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it goes a little further. What does it say? We sing it sometimes. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing That our suffering produces endurance, and our endurance produces character, and our character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Make no mistake. Before you come to faith, you are an enemy of God. Why why do we need peace with God? Because before you come to faith, you are an enemy of God. No matter how moral you have been, your very existence spits in the face of an almighty, holy creator, and you have been found blasphemous and a traitor to the King of Glory. You are, by your existence, an enemy of God. Praise God, our Creator is in the business of loving His enemies. Jesus comes along and what's one of the things that He says that blows people out of the water? Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Which is impossible for us, but it's the very thing that God has been doing since He created mankind. And when you come to faith and receive the scandalous love, because it is scandalous... Why is it so hard for us to accept that teaching from Jesus that we should love our enemies and do good to those who hate us because it grates against our very nature. Because when someone is your enemy, when someone has wronged you, the last thing you want to do is to love them and be good to them. But that's exactly what God has done for us in Christ Jesus and that's why grace is is scandalous, not because it was given freely, but because we do not deserve it. And when we come to faith and receive the scandalous love of God, when we realize that we don't deserve that love, but we receive it because we believe that it has been given to us, then we are no longer God's enemy, but instead have by the faith given to us been adopted into his family. We have become sons and daughters. We're given a new family and we're even given an inheritance. And all of this happens as a result of Jesus' work for you and for me in our place. When you are given the gift of faith to believe that Jesus' perfect life, Every choice that he made, everything that he did in obedience to his Father was lived and done and chosen as a replacement for your imperfect living and doing and choosing. His perfect life is a replacement for your broken and sin-filled life and mine. And his death was the death that you and I both deserved. Because we are the enemies of God. And that's why those who do not come to faith and who have not been chosen will be justly punished. Because we deserve the wrath of God because of our sin. But Jesus willingly substituted himself for you and for me, for us, if you believe. You see, your sin becomes his sin. And His righteousness becomes yours. Your penalty of God's wrath is poured out on Jesus on the cross, but God's love for His obedient Son is poured out and lavished on you. This is scandalous. And it is the crux of the Christian faith. Anything that does not emanate from this scandalous love and grace poured out from the cross of Jesus, given as a free gift to those who do not deserve it, emphasizing that God came to save the ungodly, is not orthodoxy. It's not the Christian faith. And it is not the gospel. And it has no power unto salvation. So why Galatians? Why did we come here? Because everything springs from this point and hinges on this cross. Because we believe that redemption was wrought by a particular man on a particular cross, on a particular day, on a particular hill, with particular blood, for a particular people that God had chosen for himself. Apart from any effort on our part. Apart from any good thing, in fact, in spite of there being no good thing in us at all, He chose, He gave, He loves, He worked, He earned and continues to earn for us the good and faithful servant that we will hear when we enter into the presence of our Father. He rescues, He redeems, and that is why we call Him wonderful. Master, Redeemer, Savior, Lord, Jesus Christ. For he has saved God's people from their sin. So let's look here at verse 11. Paul is wrapping up. He's drawing to a close and he says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So just to kind of, you know, Interesting point of fact, probably this whole time he has been dictating to a scribe and almost in passion, it's as if Paul grabs the pen from the writer. He says, give me that. And he says, see with what large handwriting I'm writing. And and, and so in that, we see that this angst that we've been feeling through this whole letter is really coming from a place of passion and love and passion personal relationship for the Galatians. And so you see that and you almost wrest that pin from the writer and and begin to see with what. Now, some people also say, um, and and we kind of read about this in the earlier part of the book, when Paul talks about when he, he was with the Galatians and how that Even his very appearance was a bother to them and and he had this ailment in his body. Some people feel that, that Paul was literally going blind and so the reason the letters were so big were not only because he was so passionate but because he could not see and so he had to write really big. We don't know for sure but it's fun to speculate and think about that. But when you read it, in line with the text, you do sense this passion and this urgency and this personal relationship with which Paul is writing. And he grabs and he says, look at my handwriting. It's, it's a reminder that this is a personal touch. This, this isn't Paul sitting up in some ivory tower. In fact, he very possibly could even be in prison at this point, possibly in Antioch. But he's not just pontificating from some place to those who will hear. And, you know, this is very sort of robotic. This is very personal. This is a personal letter from Paul to people that he lived with, that he suffered with, that he um, preached the gospel to day in and day out and was a part of planting these churches that made up the body of Christ in this geographical context called Galatia. And so we really see that it is a letter of love for the Galatians and the church at large. And so he says in verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Again, we see Paul playing with words. We see a bit of possibly some sense of humor in this play on the word flesh that they want to make a good showing in the flesh circumcision, draw, you know, connect the dots for yourself. There's a little bit of pushback again on these people who want them to literally cut their flesh and show how good they are. And and yet at the same time, there's this play on the word where, where Paul is saying they're using you to kind of make a banner for themselves, a trophy, if you will, for themselves. The Judaizers want to make... You, he says, their earthly trophy for earthly accolades and acceptance. And, and so, literally, here, what these Judaizers are doing, it, it goes back to chapter, uh, in earlier in chapter 6, in verse 8, where Paul says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And what are the Judaizers doing by? making and trying to force the Galatians to adhere to the law so that they can lift them up and see, see what we did with these Gentile believers over here? They're Jews now. Look at us. We did a good job. What are they doing? They're, they're sowing from the flesh to the flesh. And what will they reap from that? Only what the flesh can give them, which is what? Corruption. Death, decay. Only temporary acceptance instead of eternal acceptance acceptance with christ paul says in verse 13 for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh and so daniel did such a good job to us of lining out the three uses of the law and and there there is a use for the law but here is the use of the law to show us that we need a savior to show us that we are sick, we are broken, we are depraved, and we are helpless to save ourselves. We need the doing of another if we are to have any hope at all. It's the MRI. It's the x-ray. It's not the cure. And no matter how many times you go get an MRI, no matter how many times you get an x-ray, it can only show you what's there. It has no power to change What is there. And so the law is good, it's holy, it's perfect. And we will continue to look at the law, to look into the mirror of God's perfection and see where we stand and be reminded that we are not our own Savior. But in that same mirror of God's holy and perfect Word, we will see a holy and perfect Savior whose doing counts for us and by whom we are redeemed. And so there is good use of the law, three good uses of the law, but none of those uses have the power to change us. Because even if you could keep the law outwardly, it's an inward Work that God is looking for. And you and I do not have the power to change the thoughts and affections and motivations of our hearts. Every single one of us could come up and grab this microphone and testify to the fact that we have tried to change ourselves. We have tried to do everything that we could To make our hearts produce something good. And at the end of the day, have found that our hearts are, as John Calvin said, only idol-making factories. Because even our good works cause us to boast in ourselves instead of in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly where Paul is going here in this last part Of the letter. So he says, uh, he carries on, and he says at the end of verse 13 what we already read, but they desire to have you circumcised. Why? So that they may boast in your flesh. You see, the gospel is inside out, not outside in. It's inside out. It works inside out. It does not work outside in. And most of us have. Grown up under teaching that has tried to cram the gospel essentially through our pores into our heart. And you cannot lather the gospel up enough on the outside of you to get it inside of you to affect your heart. It does not work. It must come from the inside out. It cannot work. From the outside in. An inner change of heart leads to new motivations for conduct of behavior, not vice versa. And then even when that is happening, hear me, hear me, look here and hear me. Those changes of behavior are not the point. So as the gospel gets planted inside of you, without any effort of your own, It will begin to produce holiness. It will. That's what the gospel does. But the holiness that it produces is not the point. It's not what God is looking at. He is looking at the holiness of his son. Who by his blood covers you. And you've been united in Christ. So that it's His holiness that counts, not yours. But the Holy Spirit is, again, apart from any effort of your own, whether you like it or not, molding you and shaping you into the image of the Son of God. And so your life will begin to look different, but looking different's not the point. The cross of Jesus Christ is all that counts. So the big question here is, what are you boasting in? What, I mean, truly, on I mean, come on, we know, we know the right answer, right? We know what we should be boasting in is Jesus, the cross of Christ. Yes, but I'm not. Not every moment of every day. I'm not boasting in the cross of Christ. I boast in my own flesh. I boast in what I can get done and how good I am at doing it. And then I wallow in misery when I fail and need to be reminded that my boasting must be in the cross of Jesus Christ. I know that's where it should be, but it's not always there. Maybe never totally there. But then what am I doing even now? I'm trying to figure out a way to boast in how much I'm boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ. Which is not really boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ, is it? What are are we boasting in? What are we going to boast in as a family of believers? We're going to boast in how many people we had on a Sunday morning or how many people are involved in missional community or how good we are at singing a song. We can celebrate those things and thank God for those things. But they're not what we boast in because they're not what matters. What matters is the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, if the cross of Jesus is just a help, but you feel like you have to complete your salvation with good works, you are your own savior, which means you may not be saved. Now, you could be regenerated and be saved, but kind of be erring in a place where you're not finding your true salvation in Christ alone and so you're trying to add your works to it you'd be in the same place the Galatians are in and why Paul is writing this letter but if you've always been in that place then it may be time to work out your salvation with a little fear and trembling and say Where am I truly finding my rest in? Am I finding it in my ability to keep God's law and be good and do better? Or am I truly resting in the fact that what Christ has done for me is enough? And could it be that God even allows us to struggle with our flesh and battle our sin? Come on, guys, did you hear what I just say? Could it be that God even allows us to struggle with sin and battle our flesh so that we would be reminded that it's only by His grace and His cross. I mean, how many of us have struggled with besetting sin? The same thing over and over and over again. Whether it's an action or an attitude or a... It doesn't matter, but we all know. I I highly doubt that there's anyone on this earth that doesn't have at least one thing that they battle with over and over and over and over and over again. And sometimes when our faith is weak, we think that that means that we're not saved, and that's not necessarily true. But when those things are happening, if we rest in the finished work of Christ on our behalf, if we remind ourselves that what He has done is enough and that God is not surprised. Like, never. You have never surprised Him with your sin. Never once. Whoa! 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 Wasn't expecting that one today. You really got me. That that has never happened. Ever. Ever. Never, okay, grab this. My daughter drives me nuts sometimes because she does things that she knows she shouldn't do and it surprises me. It shouldn't surprise me, but it does. And I'll even have the words come out of my mouth that should never come out of my mouth. God, help me remove them from my vocabulary with my kids. But I say it all, I can't believe That you just did that. You, exactly. You you know better. That's never come out of God's mouth towards you. Not once. Not once. Not once has he said, I can't believe you did that. You know better. He says, remember, child, what my son did was enough. So if the cross of Jesus is just a help, but you have to complete your salvation with good works, you are your own Savior because it was your good works that pushed you over the edge in your own thinking. And how conceited are we when we think that? Do we really believe that any good thing that we could do when laid at the feet of the creator of the universe is valued more than his own son's sacrifice for us. R.C. Sproul Jr. uh, said once that every sermon and every mission endeavor and every good thing was a dead mouse on his father's back porch. Just like a cat brings a dead mouse to its owner and says, see, can't you see how much I love you? Every good thing that we could possibly offer is a dead mouse on our Father's back porch. And that doesn't mean that our good works have no value. But when we bring them to try and earn from God, that's when we're sowing from the flesh to the flesh. And we reap what only the flesh can give, which is corruption. You see, if you understand the gospel, your only source of boasting is exclusively and only in the cross of Christ. So verse 14, I would say, let this become your motto. Let this become the motto of your family. Let it become the motto of our church in a sense that as he says in verse 14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I mean, what if that could become a driving force in your life? That my boasting would only be in the cross of Jesus Christ. I get a promotion. Praise God, I'm going to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. I get fired. Praise God, I'm going to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. I experience good blessings from God. Praise God, I'm going to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. I did not earn this. It's a... I could not possibly have earned that. I mean, how often so, something good happened to me? I must have done something good. I'm a, it's just like ingrained in, in us that when something good happened, oh, man, you must have done something right. You did nothing right. It's a gift of God's grace. And then when something goes the way we didn't expect it to go, what are we called to do? to still rest in the providence and the sovereignty of our God, that he has not been surprised by this, and that there is nothing that we lack that he will not fill with himself. We've got to scrub karma from our minds and understand that if we receive blessing from the Lord, will we not also receive suffering? And in that suffering, I mean, even as we read, in Romans 5, produces what? Endurance and endurance, hope and hope will not be put to shame. You see, we are saved solely and wholly because of Christ's work and not our own. Solely and wholly because of Christ's work and not our own. And so Paul says that through the cross of Christ by which he boasts, The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, this is not Paul saying, I have removed myself from the world to keep myself clean and pure, because if we have to remove ourselves from the world and then say, see, I've been crucified to the world and it to me, really we haven't, because by virtue of us removing ourselves completely from the world, all we've proven is that the world really has a strangle grip on us. Because the only way we can be free is to remove ourselves from it. Which isn't really freedom, right? I mean, that'll preach to some of our relationship problems. You have a relationship problem with somebody? i have fix that right now. Get out the scissors and cut that umbilical cord. Done. You didn't, you didn't just become free. You became more enslaved. You built a wall around yourself, a border separating you from people that God has in his sovereignty, by his province, in his love, and by his grace purposefully put into your life. That doesn't mean that sometimes in real life you need boundaries, but to think that you can walk through your life just cutting that cord every time somebody rubs you the wrong way or gets on your nerve, you're going to find yourself very, very alone very quickly. What Paul is saying is that he is free because he's now free to be in the world and enjoy the good blessings of God in the world without the world having a hold on him. This speaks to Christian liberty, which is something we don't hear a lot about anymore. That as Christians, we have liberty to enjoy the good blessings of God so long as it doesn't go against conscience. If it goes against conscience to him who knows to do what is right and does it not, to him it is a sin. And so Paul is able to be in the world. He's able to journey with the Galatians, these Gentiles who, by the way, just like us, the moment they got saved, they didn't become super holy mega Christian star. They're still walking through stuff. John Newton, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. We, we know the story, right? Where, where, who was he? Where did he come from? a slave trader practiced in the raping of the female slaves without any thought of conscience. Got saved, ran three more slave trips back and forth before God pricked his conscience. Was he saved? Was he justified? Was his ticket punched? 100%. Was God still working on him? Does it seem to go a lot slower for you than you think it should? Me too. Don't lose heart. Don't give up hope. And remember that being good and doing better is not the point. Jesus is. So Paul says in verse 15, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Does this sound familiar? He's used this phrase before. But he says here in verse 15. A new creation. So he says, neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So what counts? Being a new creation. Now, the last time he used this language was in chapter 5, verse 6. And he says, neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith working itself out in love. And really what he's doing here is he's saying the same thing. He's reminding us of the same thing. That when faith comes to our heart, what happens? We are changed. We become a new creation. Now, battle with the flesh is still there, what we've kind of been talking about. But we become a new creation. And that's what matters. Have you been made a new creation? Yes or no? Yes? That's what matters. Not what is on the outward appearance or action i mean this goes all the way back to david doesn't it god is choosing for israel a king he tells samuel i'm going to choose from the sons of jesse jesse brings all of his sons puts them in front of samuel and and from the oldest to the youngest in line each one of them looked like a king but there was one who was not there samuel said i will neither eat nor drink until you bring him to me and what did God say? God does not look on the outward appearance, but on the heart. Now we hear that, we hear that, and how many times have we heard that and thought, well then by golly, I'll just make my heart good. That's how I think to myself, by golly, I'm a redneck on the inside. On the outside half the time too, 75%, 99 whatever. How many times have we heard that and thought, "I'm, I, I, well, if that's what God's looking at, then I'll just change my heart. And he'll see how good. He, he lo- You can't judge me. God looks at the heart, and you don't know what's on the inside of me. I know what's on the inside of you. It stinks. And what's on the inside of me stinks. In the King James, it stinketh. <laughs> what's of me, anyways? But what's of God? which has come from Christ, is what God looks at. It's what he's looking for. And so neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only a new creation, which is brought about by faith, working itself out in love. The gospel redeems my past and present wrong. It alters and reorients my present motivations, desires, feelings, and direction. It gives me a new self-image because I no longer have to see myself in light of my sin. I now can see myself in the light of Christ. Or rather, I no longer have to try to look at myself through the darkness and murkiness of sin. I now can see myself in the light of Christ. It changes my future destination for sure, but it also gives me a place, a spot at the table. It changes because it changes my identity. I'm no longer a stranger to God, but a son. I'm no longer an enemy, but one who has found favor and an inheritance from my Creator. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, But the old, behold, the old has passed away, and the new has come. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so Paul says in verse 16, And as for all who walk by this rule, now, he's not talking about law. He's talking about walking in step with the gospel orthodoxy those who live by this orthodoxy grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone what does he say peace and mercy be upon them and I almost like to think of that in pirate speak peace and mercy be upon them Uh, because it's, it's talking about something that is, not something that Paul hopes will be. Does that make sense? Peace and mercy be upon them. It, it, it does rest upon them. It's not necessarily a prayer. If it is a prayer, it's a prayer in the same sense that Jesus prayed Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It is holy. Jesus is not asking that it will become holy. He's declaring it is holy. Hallowed is thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's not praying that it will hopefully happen. He's saying it is going to happen. This will be. Peace and mercy rests upon those who walk in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to yearn for peace. It is yours. You don't have to ask for mercy. It has been given and it will not ever be taken away. Because what Jesus has done can never be undone. can never, ever be taken away. And if you as a believer ever feel that peace and mercy have been lost, you have been deceived, and you need to return to the cross of Jesus and be reminded that His grace was offered freely for you and He has never, ever been surprised. And He has never been closer to you than He is right now, no matter how far you feel from Him. Be upon them, he says, and upon the Israel of God. What in the world is Paul talking about there? Well, you know, he's, he's talking about the Jews. In Israel, this geographical location in the Middle East, it's not what he's talking about. Who is the true Israel of God? Those who have been born by faith, not by blood. Those who are Abraham's seed seed, By faith, not by blood. And the true Israel of God are those who are his people by faith. The church of Jesus is the true Israel of God. And again, it's a reminder that Galatians is not an individual letter, it's not something that we are meant to read for ourselves, by ourselves, in our room, and only digest by ourselves for us. It is a communal letter written to the church of Jesus Christ, the true Israel of God, those who have been born of faith, the seed of Abraham, those who have been justified by God, His chosen people, grace, peace, mercy. And so Paul ends the letter in verses 17 and 18. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul's persecution is evidence that he is living for a future reality and not a present acceptance. And he literally bore on his body the scars of being whipped twice, 40 lashes minus one being stoned and left for dead several times, being shipwrecked and yet persevering on this journey towards the prize, right? Forgetting what is behind, I press on towards the goal that Christ has set before me. And it's a call to us to do the same, to suffer with Christ and and experience the glory and the joy that awaits us as we suffer with Him and for His gospel. The day is coming when we may suffer even in our lifetime more than we ever thought that we would, even here in the United States of America. And it's not a time to whine and complain and picket. It's a time to look fuller in the cross of Jesus Christ and allow our boasting to only come from the cross and our motivation to spring from the gospel. And verse 18, the end of Galatians. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And so one of the big ideas that we can pull from Galatians is not only that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but that grace isn't only what gets us in, it's what keeps us in. So grace isn't something that we need to receive one time and done, and now it's up to us to carry on. Grace is something we keep coming back to our Father for. We keep coming back to the cross of Jesus Christ to remind us of the grace we have already received and the grace that is available to us for each and every new day. You see, the Christian faith is not about being good and doing better, It is not about forcefully exhibiting what we call the fruit of the Spirit because it's the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit will produce it. So it's not about being good and doing better. The Christian faith is about Jesus, how that He was perfect and He already did it and He hung on a cross and He said, it is finished and he would teach his disciples that there would be a day when the father would judge. He would look at the heart and he would say, enter into the rest of your father. So let's practice that now. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this beautiful, beautiful letter. And as a benediction, Father, I just repeat what Paul has said. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with our spirit all the brothers and sisters here amen let's enter into a time of communion we came today as soil prepared to receive a seed that could be planted that's what happens through the word Now we come, church, to be fed, and we feed on the body and the blood of Jesus.